Eco Interviews listeners. As you know, the Eco Interviews is where we amplify the voices of eco warriors from across the world. My name is Fiona Martin, and I started the Eco Interviews as a way to speak to people who are involved in helping tackle the climate crisis we find ourselves in. In this episode, I'm speaking to Jenny Stevens, CEO of the Center for Ayers Property Preservation since its inception in 2005. The Ayers Property Center is located in Charleston, South Carolina, and they help people and families resolve title issues with their land that they've inherited without a will. What does Ayers Property have to do with environmentalism? All too often, those in an Ayers Property situation can be exploited by developers or loggers to sell their land below its value, with the buyer then capitalizing from the natural resources of the land. Ayers Property has also been a tool used to remove poor and black people from their ancestral homes. We spoke to Queen Quet of the Gullah Geechee Nation in a previous episode about her people's struggle to remain stewards on their ancestral land. The Ayers Property Center helps families protect and keep their family land, build generational wealth, and grow working landscapes. They've also partnered with the American Forest Foundation to provide education to families for sustainable land use, turning land that was once seen as a liability into an asset while protecting natural resources. This interview is one in a series we are running investigating the harmful effects of settler colonialism, removing native peoples from their lands in order to exploit it. The United States has a sad history of this, from removing and committing genocide against Native Americans to enslaving Africans and then denying them their rights after emancipation. But this isn't a torrid episode from our past. Indigenous peoples are still fighting for their homes, from Canada to Indonesia and across the world. And indigenous land practices are generally more in line with natural ecological cycles instead of our modern destructive land practices. If you've never heard of Ayers Property, this is a great introduction to the concept. I encourage you to research more and I'll continue to find guests with unique perspectives. Reach out to us on social media if there's a topic you'd like us to explore and pop over to Patreon, search the Eco Interviews to contribute to the cause. Now, enjoy our chat with Jenny. Welcome Jenny Stevens to the Eco Interviews. We're very excited to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Doing well. Thank Perfect. you for having me. Yeah. Jenny Stevens is from the Center of Ayers Property Preservation. Um, it'd be great if you could introduce yourself and tell us about the Ayers Property Center. Okay. Well, um, as Fiona said, I, am, I have the privilege of being the CEO here at the Center for Ayers Property Preservation. Um, we're a nonprofit organization that was created in 2005. Um, if you may not know what heirs property is, it's land that has been passed down without a will. So the family, the result is the family ends up owning it jointly and have to make um, decisions jointly for it really to be, the used to be maximized. And um, so when we started in 2005, it was really providing that legal education and those direct legal services to resolve um, any issues to the title. So let me give you an example. People who own heirs property, they can't get a mortgage because there's not clear marketable title, okay? Um, they cannot, or they have very limited access to conservation programs or housing rehabilitation um, uh, uh, funds from the state or the federal government. And you know now the Gulf has just gone through a hurricane. And so people who own heirs property 
are it's it's difficult for them to benefit from FEMA funds. So there's a lot of can'ts, even though land is considered a major asset. Uh, for heirs property owners, they see it more as a liability than they do as an asset. So here at this organization, we see ourselves as a tool that landowners can use to resolve any title issues and unlock the potential in their family land. Okay. Yeah. So when I first heard of heirs property, it was, it's a term that's new to me. So, you know, I Googled it and it, it very much comes up, uh, for South Carolina. Is it unique to South Carolina or is this something that happens across the country or maybe even across the world? Actually, it's, it is across the world. So it's not just a South Carolina thing. Um, but in the South, it is seen to have resulted from after uh, the Civil War where African-Americans could acquire, they acquired land, either worked for it or paid for it outright, um, where one, um, there weren't a lot of lawyers, <laughs> so they didn't know who to approach on how to pass this asset down to their loved ones. Um, there's also an article that was written by, um, sorry, having a senior moment. Uh, the, it was, the title of the article is Torn from the Land, mm -hmm. um, where it talks about how African-Americans lost a lot of land after the turn of, uh, after the Civil War. And so, one, if there were lawyers, they didn't trust them. And two, so, um, yeah, they maybe couldn't afford them. And then the result was that basically they create a way to pass down this asset to their family. But the problem with that is usually it was orally passed down. You know, they say, hey, Sue, you have this piece by the road. Jim, you have the piece you know, on the corner, but we all know if it's not in writing, it's not valid. Um, and I, so I just gave you a little snapshot of how it looks in the South, but really it's not an African-American issue only. To me, it's a low-income issue. Okay. So if you were to go to the Appalachian area, the skin color of the landowner would change, but it would be the same issue. Um, it's also known among Native Americans, except it's called fractionated land for them. Um, so it's also in the, the colonias, you know, so in, yeah, it basically low income folk do not sit around the dinner table and talk about estate planning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have touched a little bit on it. And it's interesting. I'm interviewing different people because I, mm -hmm. I have become aware of what we're calling colonial settlers and and the negative impacts and right. and so i'm hearing more about this in the south i'm hearing i'm going to speak to um, a native american uh woman later this week about similar uh issues um and then yesterday i interviewed a gentleman from indonesia talking about uh, the indigenous people not right. being able to claim their land exactly the same thing it's not right. that written title can you speak to this issue in south carolina and um, remind us of the history of um, uh, post-Civil War Black land ownership. So actually it's, and I, I forgot my one little piece of, one little disclaimer I usually give, and just want to remind the, the audience that I'm not an attorney, so I'm not providing you with any, any legal advice, but just the broad overview about this um, issue. So, I think it was USDA, they have the agriculture census. And um, I think African-American, and it was re in relation to farmers. So I don't know if it's just South Carolina, but just from that perspective, um, right after the Civil War, 
African-Americans owned about 15 million, of, 15 million acres of land. Then in the, I think it's um, the early 21st century, that was down to about 3 million acres. And so some of the um, researchers have attributed that loss to um, the policy that USDA had with African-American farmers, um, heirs property, because, you know, if you don't pass it down, heirs property is also a very vulnerable form of land ownership because literally um, one person can sell their interest. So if you want to think about it, think about heirs property as a pie. Um, you might have started out with four slices of pie because you've had um, a spouse and three children who is, who's the heir of the person who's on uh, the deed. But however, they continue to not have an estate plan or not probate that loved one's estate. So the pie doesn't get any bigger, the slices do. Um, and so it makes it hard to really, to utilize the land. Um, and I, you asked me a question. So yes, so a lot of land was lost because people either didn't pay the property taxes. Um, that's the other thing about heirs property. You know, who does pay the property tax? Really, all of the owners are responsible for it. But what we've discovered, there's usually uh, a couple of responsible folk who are staying on top of it and uh, making sure the bill is paid. So there, there are several reasons why land has been lost among African-Americans. It must be nearly impossible to get all family members of a large extended family to pay the taxes. <laughs> well, you know, we all get along with all of our family members, don't we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I know, right? So, but, and if you think about it too, in some cases, some family members left the South and we always joke that we tease the Philly and the New York people, um, but you're in essence asking people to make a business decision and they don't know each other, mm -hmm. you know, maybe except for the dropping in for a family reunion. And in some cases, not even that. So how do you want, you know, what do you expect to happen when you ask two strangers to make it, you know, a business decision? Yeah. Uh, in one of your presentations, I watched your TEDx um, talk that you did in Charleston and you talked about um, these families being land rich, but cash poor. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate on that? So it goes back to, as I said, there are a lot of camps associated with heirs' property, but typically land is one of the major assets that people use to build wealth, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't have clear marketable title, then you have land, but you don't have the cash to either resolve the title issue or to... Um, as I said, maximize the use. It could be through ag. It could be through leasing the land um, because you don't in, you don't have clear title. One of the things that we operate a sustainable forestry program here. So, let's say people have uh, a certain amount of acreage and they haven't managed it well, but they have the timber cut. Um, typically, they're not going to get the best price for that timber being cut um, because the timber buyer, of course, is going to make sure that he or she is protected from, you know, not knowing the air. So it, it's, um, yeah, it makes it, so that's why it's 
land rich, but cash poor. You really cannot tap into the equity. That's the better way of putting it um, in, in, that, in that asset. Mm -hmm. I've, read. Heard, I've heard one researcher call it dead capital. That's how they, they described it. Right. It's not, it's an asset that's not working in your favor at that point. Um, I've, I've seen some really sad stories of, of people who unfortunately were taken advantage of due to the, the sh shaky ground that heirs property left them on. Is there uh, one of these stories that you'd be uh, okay to share with us to kind of visual crystallize it in our heads? And it's interesting that you said you watched my TEDx talk. And so I use an example. Um, that scenario happened before the center was established where really, I believe um, it goes back to lack of knowledge. People don't understand what it means to own land as heirs property. So this particular gentleman, and it was the Rivers family, that's who I referred to. And it was on the front page of our, our regional paper where because the sister had approached her brother and saying, basically, buy me out. Um, and he, he felt that she had no right to ownership because she didn't live there. Um, and uh, long story short, it was a really not so nice case. The family ended up being forced off the property. And when I say the family, not only was Mr. Rivers staying there on this land, and basically, you could stand on this man's backyard and look out on the marsh that and you could see the interstate. So just kind of prefacing how valuable this land is. Mm -hmm. um, and so when they went to court and because they could not agree, because that's the key point. Um, what we do here though, is we bring about agreement before the case goes to court. So in essence, we're saying to the judge, hey, we've identified all the heirs, here's how they want this to happen. Um, whereas, but this case didn't do that because they weren't in agreement um, they went to court and ultimately the judge said, you know, it's easy to divide money versus land. Um, and so the judge forced a sale and a group of developers bought it for, I think about $500,000. Um, however, once they, uh, cleared the title, they made, I think over $2 million on that property. So the cash or the wealth, whichever word you want to use, that was in that land that belonged to that family had been lost because they didn't understand what it meant to either own the land as heirs property or to how, how to resolve it in a favorable way. Right. It sounds like people in a vulnerable position be taken advantage of not coming to the table possibly with, uh, with the best hand, right? If we're in negotiations with someone trying to buy your land. Correct. Uh, Even though the laws have changed now, that would have made it a little different and they could have gotten a higher price. But back then, that law was not in place. Okay. So what, what laws have they put in place now to so prevent that from happening? It's the Uniform Partition Heirs Property Act. Um, but for South Carolina, it's called the Senator Clemente Pinckney Heirs Property Act, if I'm not mistaken, where it would have required that the land be put up for a traditional uh, real estate uh, sale versus an auction, because that's what happened. Um, and so that family could have gotten a better price for the property. And it also, that law <clears throat> looks at, what is the word? It's not intrinsic value, but the 
value that the family associates with that land versus the economic value. Um, so there are a couple of things that could have made the outcome of that case differently if it was tried at a, you know, 20 years later. Mm-hmm. That's sad. Um, in a previous, a previous guest of ours, Queen Quet, uh, who is the uh, chiefess of the Gullah Geechee people who are down the low country. Right. Um, it, speaking to her, it, that sounds like a community that has been very much affected by heirs property. Um, can you talk about the difficulties faced by those? Oh, well, we've spoken a little bit about the difficulty of those face those with air in an heirs property situation, but mm-hmm. in particular, especially with the low country, there's a lot of this coming up as it relates to gentrification. Yeah. Can you talk to us about that? Um, it's interesting, you know, when um, the descendants of the enslaved folk acquired land, it was often the less productive land. And um, so, you know, back then it was not a value. But it's interesting now, um, I like to say everybody and their mama wants to live next to the marsh or to the water. So, <laughs> what wasn't valuable back then now is. Um, And, you know, we're like any city or town where you're blessed that there are attractions that bring folk from outside to your area, Mm -hmm. but that also can be seen as a curse because once those people arrive here, they often want to change the things that they loved and which brought them to this community. Um, so yes, we live in a region where there is, you know, home to Boeing, home to Volvo, home to Mercedes. Um, it's constantly growing and, um, you know, you have to accommodate the growth to support those industries. And unfortunately, the individuals who don't have clear title or who don't have a, um, a louder voice, I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes their communities are changed and then ultimately they're gone. They're, they no longer live there. And the flavor, the culture, the history that made that community what it was is now gone. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I was just reading uh, Farming While Black by Leah Penniman, and she mm-hmm. talks a little bit about gentrification. Just as you mentioned, the, you know, it was areas that were previously, previously un, less productive or undesirable, but then the hard work of those people there have changed that. And now other That's people correct. want to come in. And uh, one of the articles I read is talking about losing some of this um, African-American history and culture in the process because there's mm-hmm. these developments being built right next to, say, a historic um, AME church or graveyard. Correct. Can you talk about right. that? So we haven't had a lot of exposure to that, but we have heard how when uh, developers acquire a property where there was or is an African-American cemetery, of course, it becomes a gated community. And then that means that those families have to have permission to go see their loved ones. Um, And in some cases, it's not been as nice and they basically uh, move them to another spot. So, um, you know, it just, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. So it's an un- that's incredibly. I can't imagine how un- not even just unpleasant, just quite tr- traumatic to not be able to visit something that is sacred to your your family and your community. Right. And so with our Gullah history project that we have um, through a grant from the South Carolina Department of Archives, 
we've made nine grants to communities and I think about a third of those communities are looking at restoring cemeteries um, and actually making them a spot that people want to visit. And I don't mean just the family, but um, it's amazing what you can learn when you, I, I know it sounds a little morbid, but when you walk through a cemetery and how they're discovering, you know, they had people who were in the, you know, World War One or World War Two, and the fact that they didn't know it, there really is a lot of history in those cemeteries. Mm. Uh, is, do you want to talk about that grant program a little bit more and tell us the sort of work that's being done <laughs> to preserve this history? And So... You, know, you never really hear us kind of talk about gentrification. What we're saying, though, is we want to make sure that folk learn about the culture and history that occurred in the communities, because once you know it, then if in, you can, um, what's the word I'm looking for? If you can emphasize that, then at least people know that they're, the history and culture, so it's less likely to be gentrified if possible. So our route has been, you know, helping everyone, the broader community, understand the history and culture associated with these communities, and of course, resolving heirs' property. So to us, that is a way of preventing gentrification. Mm -hmm. uh, and making sure the landowners are also um, aware of how planning and zoning, you know, how those decisions are made so that they can also be involved um, on the pro in that process. Mm -hmm. I think there's a Richard... Louvre quote in regards to the earth if you, you cannot love what you cannot know and you cannot know what you cannot see and i feel like that harkens to that the uh you can't respect or understand mm -hmm. what you're on unless you understand the history that you're on so hopefully these preservation uh, initiatives are going to bring a deeper understanding and also a consideration when it comes to residential development that we don't continue well, to make the mistakes that we've made for centuries in this country right. when it comes to whitewashing everything. <laughs> Your term, not mine. Yeah, I said um, it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I, I also want to say, though, that it is, um, and I, I alluded to this, or I said it actually in my op-ed, op is the fact that Charleston is going to be home to the International African American Museum and African Americans have made, you know, it's, they're not, there's not a lot of documentation of the contributions from African Americans in history books that children get to know, but yet the communities that help make Charleston what it is, is now they're, you know, they're literally being erased because of development. Exactly. Um, we don't want that to be in the in the museum. Yeah, Excuse so me. Why, why do you want to protect the history and culture in the museum, but you don't care anything about the actual communities or the people who help make that history happen? It's similar with the conservation movement of, you know, let's conserve this beautiful land, but then kick the people off the land in the process. It's, uh, it's, well, it's, and I am, um, you know, I've knocked heads a couple of times with conservation folk, and I've always posed the question, you're conserving or preserving it for whom? Mm -hmm. <laughs> These are all questions that I, that are coming up a lot right now, and, and, and rightfully so, it needs to be brought back up. 
Um, it, the heirs property issues certainly come up when we're talking about selling land. That's a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. But you mentioned just briefly that the heirs property preservation also educates people on how to use their land to work for them. So turning that asset into an actual asset right. and in particular through sustainable land use with forestry. Can you tell us about this? Sure. Um, the center, um, prior to 2013, as I said earlier, the center's focus really was on legal education and uh, delivering direct legal services. But a couple of funders said, well, hey, if that's all you guys are ever going to do, we may not fund you in the future. And so we started thinking about other alternatives. Um, now, of course, it's hard to resolve title to heirs property, but, you know, it's a valid question. You know, once people's title titles are cleared, what are they now doing for the doing with the land? Um, and and so we had the opportunity to create a partnership with our state forestry commission, with our local natural resource, well, a division of USDA, two of them, uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service and the Farm Service Agency, um, and conservation groups and the Wildlife Federation, you know, literally we sat around the table and um, when the U.S. Endowment for Forestry and Communities came out with this uh, a grant application or grant notice and saying, um, you know, we have the forestry folk saying, look, we can't serve this group of folk because they don't have clear title. Um, and you have the USDA folks saying, well, one, they either don't know we exist or they're not coming to our office. So it was really a great match to bring all of us together to see how um, we could work together. And um, basically, I like to use the term to have an opportunity for families to see that their land can work for them rather than them working for the land. So that was, so we started our sustainable forestry program in 2013. Um, you know, we started out with one forester on staff. I think we're up to five now, and we serve a third of the state, um, both with our forestry services and our legal services, because what we discovered is we thought that more folk would be interested in the sustainable forestry side, but when our forester would go out and uh, conduct presentations, inevitably there would be someone say, but yeah, but don't y'all work with your property? Because we discovered that forestry became the carrot to have heirs property owners deal with issues. You know, now that they saw there was some potential money, maybe Aunt Sue or Uncle Bob wasn't that bad and I might try to have a conversation with them. So it was, it was a nice marriage of the two. Um, and it's also been proven that individuals who are uh, making money from their land, they're more likely to have a will or a succession plan um, and they're less likely to sell it. So when you look at it, we stepped into the field, we literally stepped into the conservation arena, which we weren't really ever thinking about because even though our primary focus has always been land, we always see the people first. So we always talk about families. So we never saw ourselves initially as a conservation group, but lo and behold, <laughs> um, that's really what we do. <laughs> So, uh, so you have the forestry program. Is there any interest in, um, in agriculture? Traditional ag. Mm -hmm. um, so some of our families actually do traditional ag. 
Um, and we have agroforestry, which is that combo, but you know, we wanna make sure that we're perfecting certain areas. We don't wanna become all things to all people, and hence why we partner with other groups who may be providing that traditional ag piece. Excellent. Yeah. Like, uh, as I mentioned tomorrow, I'm going to speak to someone who's actually in that, um, Northeast. Oh goodness. The acronym Northeast <laughs> land, Northeast. Uh, uh, I don't know. It's basically, um, a land trust for people of color. Okay. And so they're trying to expand you, it. And it's the Northeast is not the black family land trust. I haven't, haven't been a, had a chance to speak to them yet, but the, the connections okay. up in the Northeast, I know that they have, Okay. They do serve just the Northeast, but they're, okay. they're starting okay. to uh, mark on a U.S. map um, people of color who are forming the land. And I noticed okay. that there were three in South Carolina. And that's... Would, I'd love to know that name of that organization. When I will you do... Yeah. 100%. Okay. I will... Okay. I will get it for you um, because that that's... A, and we'll talk about this in a different interview, but that that's another part of... Um, African-Americans losing their land, unfortunately, is that they, and you mentioned the USDA, uh, uh, you know, something like 20% of farmland in 1890 was owned by black people. And now it's less Correct. than 1%, which is right. just land theft to the extreme. Such a shame. Right. Well, and not on, so on top of that, you have the issue of slavery and how African-Americans, even though organic farming is the quote unquote new thing, you know, as formerly enslaved folk, or even after that, African-Americans were practicing what was organic farming before there was a name. But because of the stigma, it is hard to get African-Americans to return. Or as I had, I was talking on a committee earlier this morning, is that, you know, we need to reconnect with the land, not see the negative aspect of it, but the fact that, you know, yeah, it, it is positive. You're working your own land. So there's a difference. Yes, that's exactly what the, the book I'm reading right now is Farming While Black and talking about the generational trauma associated with Black people working the land. And the organization I'm speaking to tomorrow is a Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust. Okay. And I will certainly connect you or send you an email with, with that information as well. Okay, um do you have an idea of how many people, families, or acres of land are affected by heirs' property? So we have what we call um, a guesstimate because really for you to clearly know what land is heirs' property and what isn't, you would need to have a title search and you would need to know the names of all heirs. So that would defeat the purpose because you would just resolve the title if you knew that. So in our... Um, you know, we're currently serving 18 counties, and in that 18 counties, we are estimating that there is at least 108,000 acres of heirs' property. Um, so we've been resolving heirs' property since 2005, and we're up to 274 titles with land valued at $16.3 million. Mm. Um, and back in the day i came up with an average of about seven thousand dollars per acre now of course a lot of that land was in charleston county which is going to skew the value but mm -hmm. you know if you took that hundred and eight thousand and multiplied it by seven um thousand i think it was almost a billion dollars and that's tax assessed value mm -hmm. um that's not what the market rate is that's tax assessed value 
So can you imagine, you know, if we could, our philosophy is if we could unlock the potential, you know, resolve the title issues to that land, then folk who are low income or have been in poverty for a while, they really have the means to help themselves move out of poverty. Um, I know you've probably heard about the car door shame, which is around uh, Interstate 95, where uh, several of the counties, there's been um, people greater than 20% of poverty for several years. Congressman Clyburn is the one coined it the I-95 corridor. Mm -hmm. um, and how the majority of our landowners live in that corridor. And so our point is, wow, if we can connect these tools to these landowners, look at the difference that we can have, not just on them now, but generations to come. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a lot of this is in Charleston County. And, and then as you just mentioned that corridor, I didn't know it was called the corridor of shame, but I have certainly driven through it from right. Charleston up to where I live in Lugoff. Like there's, okay. it, it is, it, it, you know, it's different when well, you drive through It's Interstate 95. So not 26, but Interstate 95. And if you Google corridor of shame, that's in relation to the educational system in those low-income areas. But that corridor shame happens to overlap what Congressman Clyburn has called the I-95 corridor. Mm -hmm. um, and how there is a, as I said, a greater percentage of people who are families who've been in poverty for several years. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was my next question is you serve 18 counties in, mm -hmm. um, in South Carolina, excluding Charleston County. What are these counties that are, that are, uh, that are the next <laughs> up and coming heirs property hotspot? <laughs> um, well then, so I thought you were going to ask me to name all 18. I was like, <laughs> okay, I got to do alphabet and I may nope. forget some. But so definitely Berkeley, Dorchester, because that right now is the hub for Volvo okay. and Mercedes. So you have that area. Um, there is supposedly to be a creation of, um, what is the word? Basically creating industry around the 26 and 20 intersection of the um, interstate, which would be Orangeburg County. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's, so off the top of our heads, that are my head, those would probably be the three. And the other one I would add would be Jasper County mm -hmm. because um, the widening or the, of the port for Jasper and Savannah. So you've got these traditionally poor counties, except for Berkeley and Dorchester, they're not as poor. But if you're looking at Orangeburg and Jasper, they definitely are. Um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. So what do you envision for the, the future of Ayers property? Like, for the Ayers Property Center, what is, there might not be an end goal, but what would be right. the, you know, let's forecast 20 years ahead yeah. or 50 years ahead and what are we looking at? If it were a perfect world, what we'd like to see is that everybody would have a will mm -hmm. um, and their families would know where the will is located and what to do once the person dies. Um, the interesting piece about Ayers property is literally it only takes 10 years for it to, to become, you can resolve title to something, somebody can die, have a will, they pass it on to their children. And if the children don't probate the will, um, or it, so in another 10 years, guess what? Even though you've resolved that issue, 
it is it's 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 occurred again so to answer your question in a perfect world everybody would remember all the legal education we provided to them and would have a will and uh families would know what to do with it but we know this is not a perfect world um you know, I'd like to say we want to work ourselves out of business, but I don't know if that's going to be the case. But what we've also discovered in those cases I told you that we've resolved over our 15 years is two thirds of them have been around probate, which our attorneys look at as it's prevention. So if we can get people to do that aspect, to probate the estate, then the more or the tougher one is the quiet title where you have multiple generations and people may not know each other but for probate it's not the same so if we can focus on getting people you know even if they can you know resolve the issue within 10 years and we're still in that prevention bucket and so ultimately we know we can't stop it but if we can focus on what would prevent the i like to say prevent the growth and prevent the loss of heirs property so you know it, there's two aspects two sides to that i didn't even think about the fact it could go it could be heirs property title resolved and then in a generation or two it can go back into an heirs property situation correct um and in prime example i um you know i became an ancestry.com geek a couple of years back and i was looking at my family and um one of my great grandfathers i don't know which how far back but I went and I looked up his uh, will in our in the probate court in that county. This gentleman could not read and write, but he had a will with an X. Mm -hmm. And this is like early 1900s. So then it begs the question, so what's happened to this generation now where they're we have more education, more book sense <laughs> or exposure, and yet we're not dying in a prepared way if that makes sense but here it was this gentleman couldn't read and write there's a will you know there's a will and how he transferred his land to um you know down to his heirs and then unfortunately two three years not years but uh generations and now it becomes heirs property mm -hmm. it, uh, do you have any suppositions or ideas about what has happened like i'm thinking um are there resources out there for people to um to get a will i mean we talked about not knowing who to go to we talked about the cost of hiring a lawyer there's also an aspect of distrust that's going to be right. within um either a lawyer or within our uh, legal system to to go to the courthouse you know right. what do we do so one of the tools that we have used here is is what we call a wills clinic um literally we enlist with our attorneys on staff we enlist the assistance of um for-profit or pro bono attorneys and students from our local law school and literally on a saturday and this is pre-covid because it's a little different now after covid mm -hmm. but pre-covid we would be in a church in a community center or some public building and from like 9 a.m. in the morning to three o'clock, people would be getting, we would be drafting free simple wills for individuals. Um, and so, you know, it could be a project of someone's law school to answer your question and how people could get uh, reduced wills. Um, and a lot of for-profit attorneys 
in our state, I don't know how it is in other states, at one time they were required to do so much uh, pro bono or provide uh, pro bono assistance. And so, anywho, so I think that's part of the option is, you know, working with local law schools um, or a local bar that is um, doing drafting of wills, because I know like right, around, right after 9-11, uh, a lot of bars were doing basically wills clinics for, um, and I'm going to forget the name. What do you call our uh, fire or fire folk, police? What first you call responders? Them? Yes. For yeah, they were doing drafting wills for first responders. So I think, you know, so one, it could be a project of a local bar association, um, could be a project of a law school. So there are ways if, you know, to get, a will drafted if people kind of thought outside the box and created a partnership, but mm -hmm. that's how we've done it. Yeah, it seems like I mean everything you're saying. Having a will is in, is incredibly necessary to almost be like a a full citizen. Use the assets that you have in your favor. Mm -hmm. So I would hope that we can create more resources for people, anyone who needs that sort of help. Right. You know. Well, and you you pose the question um, not how to stop it, but Literally, if everyone, as I said earlier, could have that will, uh, the personal representative knows what the will is and what and to, what to do with the will after the person dies, that is a way to uh, reduce the growth of heirs' property. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, this has been this has been enlightening for me in a, a property situ or a situation I wasn't aware of until speaking to Queen Quet and then looking right. into it further. So I really appreciate you joining us. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything you'd like to tell our audience uh, along the lines of heirs property or sustainability? I, I think that um, what I've discovered is sometimes the majority groups find it hard to approach people of color. Uh, for whatever reason, but just remember, um, you know, I've been around conservation groups where they had acquired easements from all the larger um, landowners, but what was left was a donut hole. And in that donut hole were the people of color. Um, you know, smaller people who own smaller tracts of land have the same values for their land as those that are larger. So I would embrace um, building relationships with all landowners. Um, and one of the things that I'm talking about too is oftentimes conservation groups want to do things for the community, but they need to help build the leadership capacity of the community and involve them on the conversations so that one, you know, I, I'm, an, I'm an only child and a little independent, so I never want anybody to do stuff for me. And I think, you know, that is, if we can empower the community to make their own decisions and um, really, they are environmentalists, they just don't use those large terms that are used in the, the mainstream. So I just think it's, it's basically kind of get out of your comfort zone and reach out to all landowners, um, you would find that there's great value in doing that. Yeah, so that's something I hadn't thought of. Tell, can you talk a bit more on how heirs property or, or yeah, heirs property plays into like working with conservation groups or the or that they're being excluded? It sounds like. Well, I won't say excluded. Um, 
here's a conversation that I had before we started working on our sustainable forestry program. When I would approach conservation groups about working with our landowners, now, of course, the primary tool was always a conservation easement. And then people would say, well, you know, there's no, the, the costs outweigh the benefit because it takes just as much to, um, what is it, what do you do, the thing that they do every year to maintain that you're doing what you said you're going to do on the easement? I can't remember the terminology, sorry. Um, you know, to monitor it, to monitor, it takes just as much for a 10 acre as it does for a thousand acres. Um, but it's interesting though, how those special critters are, can be found on the land of those other folk that you haven't approached. So, um, you, and if you want to help preserve those critters, but for me, it's about sustainability because I think people also, it needs to be a balance between preserving the land and helping families generate some, um, economic value from the land that is owned. And unfortunately, because of the history of land loss among African Americans, uh, they don't look very favorably on conservation easements. However, when we offer the sustainable forestry option, um, the conservation groups saw that, wow, that's a way of protecting land too. It's just not a conservation easement. So once again, I think it's just about um, being open and, and looking at different ways of doing things yeah i i agree with what you're saying um the conservation movement definitely has some skeletons in its closet and some maybe archaic ways of going about and i'm not trying business. to beat anybody up because you know we all have skeletons in our closet yeah so just saying but it's something i i've realized is uh you know through my research because i i don't come from an environmental environmentalism or conservation background it's literally just me looking at the climate crisis and saying right. what can i do so i'm just trying to talk to as many people as possible but looking into the history of the conservation movement uh you know with the idea of protecting but excluding all the people from the land is is a is a little you know you have to wonder what was going well i think we know what was going on there but anyway let's uh <laughs> Fiona, once again, you said it, I didn't. Exactly. I said it. Fiona said it. That's it. I take responsibility from what I'm saying. Um, But Jenny, yeah, I'm definitely not putting words in your mouth. Please don't let me do that. (laughs) And you brought up a very good point of the historical and current um, people wanting to come in and help, but dictating what that help is. Instead, we need to empower and listen. So correct. we want to... uh, encourage that ask the people who are already there what they want to do right any other closing thoughts jenny or do we need to not go down that rabbit hole no i i'll just say thank you for allowing me the opportunity to talk about a plethora of things on the interview but also you know most importantly talking about ears property and the importance of resolving it and helping families to maximize the use of their land so i i say thank you Perfect. How do how do people follow the heirs property preservation? Uh, wow. and, there, uh, there are many ways. <laughs> yeah. And how do we support the work that you guys are doing? Um, so um, we have a website. We have a Twitter account. We have a YouTube channel. We have Instagram. Facebook, you name it. We have all of that. So how can you support us? Um, you know, like any other nonprofit money will work but i also think just learning more about the issue and maybe you know how do you do 
you help this issue be addressed in your neck of the woods or your community. Um, and if you're a lawyer and you're in South Carolina, you can always volunteer with us at a Wills Clinic uh, or a law student. You can volunteer. Um, anything else that I may be missing? I think, yeah, I think that that's about it. Are there any uh, big projects coming up that you want to highlight? We spoke a little bit about the African American History yeah. Museum in Charleston. Is there anything else, or is that a, you want to expand on that project anymore? Um, well, the biggest thing for us is the fact that we turned 15 this year. Oh, um, congratulate! Happy birthday! Congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we're planning our our 15th finale. I can't get into the details, but definitely uh, Jeff will send you. We'll, you know, invite you to um, tune into that. And just, you know, our thing is, even though we're in South Carolina, there aren't a lot of organizations across the country that are providing direct legal services for this particular issue. And for us, we've been doing it for 15 years. So we want to share what we've learned. Um, you know, ideally, we would love to inspire love to serve the entire state of South Carolina. And we already feel that we have a national and a regional um, leadership role in this issue. Um, and so, you know, the other option is, well, not how do we clone ourselves, but can we help, how do we replicate this model for other states who may be interested? So that's, you know, that's where we are now. Excellent. Well, I'll definitely make sure to put links to the website and social media and everything in there. We will share it on our social media channels. Uh, definitely keep us in the loop about your 15-year uh, celebrations. It's such a shame that uh, your that uh, the Ayers Property Center is celebrating 15 years, and the Gullah Geechee Nation is celebrating 20. And we're in COVID, and so everything's different. But hopefully, we're adapting and still celebrating those milestones. You know, that the one good thing about COVID is it's made us be creative. <laughs> yeah, and it's made, for, for me, it's also, as much as I can't meet with people personally, it has allowed me to connect to people like yourself and then people all over the world because we're just a little bit more open to, to trying something new and getting on Zoom and talking to each other. So yeah. we'll take, take the wins where we get them for sure. Well, thank you again. All right. Thank you, Jenny. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. What did you think of that? If you enjoyed this episode, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube and give us a thumbs up. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your content and share it with your friends. Connect with the Center for Heirs Property Preservation on Facebook or Twitter. Links in the show notes. Thanks for listening. The planet is what we all have in common and that's worth fighting for. <laughs>